0: Hello, and welcome to episode 52 of the CogniCast. I'm your host, Craig Andera. There's a few things I want to mention to you, make you aware of them. Um, mentioned a few of these before, but I'll mention them again. We have uh, some training coming up. We, Cognitech, have some training coming up uh, before Closure West. So, you know, March 21st to 23rd, we've got uh, training on Closure, Closure Script, and Datomic being taught by Cognitech's uh, Luke Vanderhart. He's handling the... Closure uh, training and uh, Stuart Sierra will be doing the Datomic and the Closure Scripts training. Um, and then there's uh, separate classes later on in Durham uh, on Closure Script and on Datomic. Those are April 29th through 30th that will be taught by Stuart Sierra. So it's a good class. I have um, been to them myself. I helped Stuart teach a previous uh, uh, previous class, and I, I think it's good stuff. So I want to check that out. And you can find information about those at com slash events, which of course is a great place to keep an eye on for all events Cognitech. I want to mention a couple of events too that are not Cognitech events. Um, specifically, I'm talking about, uh, first about Closure Bridge. Uh, although there are Cognitechs involved in that effort, it's not, it doesn't come from us. So I just say that by way of saying, you know, don't thank us. Um, We are we are super excited about it, but this is something that was started by um, and is being run by other people. Um, If so, first of all, we're excited that that the first event uh, is getting ready to run in Durham, April uh, fourth and fifth, 2014, Um, and uh, you know to be followed at some point by others. Um, And if you would like to help out, um, you can go to closurebridge.org and sign up there and. You know, the Closure Bridge people will let you know um, as the effort gets off the ground and more city events in more cities happen you know, what the need for help is. Um, really worthy effort. You should go to closurebridge.org and uh, check that out and sign up and let people know. There's already been a huge number of people that have signed up to help out, so thanks a lot um, to everybody. Hundreds of people have <laughs> said they're going to help out actually, but that doesn't mean that there isn't um, need for more, so uh, do go and check that out. The other thing that um, I spotted on the web and that I think is super cool is, again, it's not a Cognitech effort, um, but it does use some of our favorite technology, so I thought I'd mention it, is uh, the Kitchen Table Coders, who you can find at kitchentablecoders.com, are uh, putting on a session, seminar, I'm not sure exactly what they call it, but um, it's called the Immutable Stack, and it features ClojureScript, um, specifically Ohm, uh, uh, Closure, Datomic, like I said, some of our favorite technologies. David Nolan, whom we've mentioned many times on the show, is involved with that. Um, and that's being held in Brooklyn, New York, uh, Saturday, April 12th. So go to kitchentablecoders.com uh, and check that out. They've got, actually got a bunch of stuff going on. It looks super cool. It makes me wish I lived in, uh, in Brooklyn. But uh, maybe you do or maybe you're nearby and you can make it over there to check it out. So, um, boy, I think that's all I'm going to mention for now. Um, certainly, a lot of cool stuff going on, and uh, so we'll we'll go ahead and we'll go on to episode fifty-two of the Cognacast. I think I'm ready to go, if you are. All
1: right, cool. Yeah, I'm, I'm ready, to, ready to do it.
0: Excellent. All right, well, welcome, everyone. Today is Friday, February 7th, the year 2014, and with us today is Alan DiPert. Welcome to the show, Alan. Thank you. Hello. Yeah, welcome back. I mean, I think this is your potentially, what, fifth recording, um, although you are, you have the singular dubious honor of being... The only person to appear on both of the lost episodes of the Cognicast. Um,
1: the uh, the apocryphal Cognacast.
0: That's right, <laughs> the apocryph Cognic something. <laughs> um, so now, before I forget the part that I have occasionally been known to forget, um, I want to get you to give us what you would like us to play for the intro song.
1: Uh, let's listen to uh, "Shepherd's Hay" by Percy Granger.
0: Okay, I am I am not familiar, um, and of course. I can't hear that right now. Can you tell me what sort of thing am I listening to?
1: So it's uh, classical music. Um, Percy Granger is kind of interesting. He's an Australian composer, early 20th century, who became famous by rearranging um, English and Irish folk tunes and setting them for orchestra and piano. Um, So "Shepherds' Day, I believe, is an old English folk tune uh, that he did a really nice arrangement of.
0: Cool. That sounds very interesting. I'm looking forward to uh, hearing it when I put the show together. Yeah. Um, well, <laughs> and, and, and I just got to comment real quick that uh, that that's a really interesting choice for a number of reasons, not least of which is I think your your choice for the original show that we didn't wind up airing, the pilot, if you if you will, was some kind of mashup that included the Sanford and Sons theme song. So <laughs> <laughs> You're Kind of all over the map there, Alan, which is cool. Yeah, well, you got to mix it up. Yeah, no, that's cool. Um, all right. Well, so the, the there there are a number of things I wanted to talk to you about. Um, uh, it's, you know, obviously we've known each other for quite a while. We used to work together and uh, we like to hang out whenever we whenever we're in the same place. Um, but uh, you've been doing some some cool work um, lately. Uh, you, you always do cool work. But there's a couple things that I've been like, oh, we got to have Alan t- on the show to talk about that. Uh, maybe kind of the main one um, that I'd love to hear you talk about is something that's a bit in the news lately. Um, I'm, I'm talking about there's things like React and ARM um, and, you know, there's just a bunch of excitement right now about different ways to structure uh, applications, um, specifically written in Clojure, uh that run in the browser. And um, you have been working on something for quite a while, actually, but uh, it sort of recently made a bit of a splash called Hoplon. Could you <laughs> – that's a big windup. Maybe I should just let you explain
1: it. <laughs> Um, yes. So, yeah, definitely, there's a lot of excitement in the in the space, um, and it's it's an area that I've been working uh, in for the past mm, well, the past two years or three years at least. I mean, um, actually, these days I don't I'm not using Hoplon professionally or as of the past several months. But um, uh, you know, it, it's not like I'll never need to make another web app again. Yeah, like right. it's gonna, it's gonna happen. Um, so, but this time I'll be prepared. So, what is Hoplon? Well, it's, um, it's a, well, it's a framework. Damn it, I'll say it. It's a framework. <laughs> um, <coughs> and it's the F word. <laughs> it is, it is a framework, and I, I call it a framework not because I think it really is, but because I think that. If you want to invest in it, it's the same level of investment that you would expect from a framework. Like it'll, you know, it's uh, the feedback we've gotten from people who are using it is that it kind of changes the way they think a little bit. And um, there's a certain amount, there's more overhead than you're used to installing it. So, I guess I would preface everything with that. Um, You know, it's it's a slightly higher investment than you're used to. But all of the feedback we've gotten from people who use it is that it was worthwhile. So. So there's that. So um, yeah, it's uh, it's something we came up with to solve this the same problem, I think, that, well, a lot of the same problems that things like React, Angular, Ember to some degree, Backbone, everything in that space uh, you know, takes aim at. Um, I think where we differ is that, particularly where we differ with respect to um, uh, React, and we're probably closer on the political spectrum to Angular, is that we really uh, take the accessibility of Hoplon applications to designers and non-closure people very, very seriously. You know, you'll see in our examples that we, you know, you, you write our templates, as we call them, but they're not really in, in HTML. And uh, all of everything you know about HTML holds true. You can use other tools to compile the HTML, you know, if you are into to um, Haml or Liquid or whatever floats your boat, all that stuff works. So, yeah, so that's uh, an aspect of the platform that I think is um, really important.
0: Yeah, no, that that's that's absolutely the case. That that's something that we uh, have talked about, uh, and I don't mean necessarily you and I, but at Cognitech we've talked before about you know what's the designer story because you know if you have access to great designers then they make an application <coughs> super awesome, and so anything you can do to help them out is great. Now we're lucky in that we have, you know, Michael Parenteau, who is able to do things like right closure. But that's not true of all designers in the world. So um, that that's definitely a huge. Um, and it's an important thing to consider when you're when you're doing the work like you're doing. Um, I wonder if you could talk a bit more about like. So you say it's a framework. It's a framework for what? Is it purely on the client side, or is it include? Because I was perusing the. Um, the website a little bit before the show um, and uh, you talk a bit about the server side i, I is yeah. there a story in hoplon for both or how does that work
1: yeah so i'll break it down okay. um, it, it's hoplon is an idea that's bu- that's built around uh, several other ideas and four closure libraries the first closure library which is really more of a closure executable is something called boot which is a build tool that we wrote so me excuse me uh, hoplon projects don't necessarily use line again uh, you can use line again in concert with boot but we generally just use boot so that's the first thing and that's probably why i would call it a framework because that's buying into a new tool people generally see that as buying into a new build tool is, is for people in the closure community so like a high barrier to entry which is funny because if you look at the node ecosystem and javascript ecosystem they've got like 10 billion build tools and people use them all
0: <laughs> simultaneously <laughs>
1: Bower, yeah and I think the reason there is such a boon in build tools in the JavaScript space is because those folks are building apps that involve all kinds of asset pre-compilation. You know, they've got their CoffeeScript needs to turn into JavaScript. Their SAS needs to turn into CSS. Their HAML needs to turn into HTML. And when you have a significant amount of dependency order processing that needs to happen just to build your app, you need something or maybe multiple things to help you do that. So, sure. So, so, you know, and, and those of us in the closure web space have the same problems. You know, there's kind of the idea of what, you know, what a Java project is, which is where most of the closure tooling comes from, but that doesn't really match up with the reality of what it takes to really build and deploy a web app these days, which is a lot of, prop, like, coordination of various um, tools. So, so boot is a, a, a very small thing, actually, that we wrote. To try and take that problem on because we actually found it we were not able to make Hoplon work with anything that existed. So boot was sort of a necessity from the beginning because it it gives us two or three little abstractions that let us coordinate the building of an app in ways that other tools didn't. So so that's piece one. Boot, of course, is is usable outside of Hoplon completely. I mean it's a you know it's a general purpose tool that you can use to to build any closure closer script project with, so you know there's that to keep in mind. So it's uh, it's the same but different.
0: <laughs> of course. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so that's yeah. So that's piece number uno. Okay. And, cool.
0: Uh, I mean, we, and uh, that, that's cool. I I like the outline. I might I might I'm curious about boot, and I might want to come back uh, if we have time and talk a bit more about that. But I suspect that the other three pieces are equally interesting. So I'll let you go ahead and uh, mention the other three.
1: Boot boot is a fun one. Um, I guess. I'll, I'll finish up with boot by talking about the name, which is, you know, it's, we really envision it as a closure bootloader. Um, it's always the case in your Clojure program that, you know, you run one version of Clojure, you have one JVM on your machine, and it's, and it's a virtual machine, this JVM. So we view boot as literally like the bootloader for the JVM. It is mm-hmm. the minimal booting environment in which you can add external dependencies. So... You know and with that and and it, it's a part of your program so the boot machinery is like baked into your program the same way your computer's firmware is we don't run extra jVms or anything like that so yeah hmm. so it's a, it's a weird and fun little thing and we've had a lot of success with it so definitely check it out and maybe talk about it later okay so yeah number two so now we're getting into like the web side of things the number two thing in hoplon is um, javelin and javelin is a Closure script library that supports data flow programming. Where data flow programming is you have a graph of identities or objects, and each of them has a value, and that value may be derived from a function. And you wish for those functions to be run such that the values are updated uh, whenever any of the um, input values change.
0: So this is the whole kind of spreadsheet idea where I change one cell and it propagates through the others.
1: Exactly. And that's the probably easiest way to think about it is it's just an abstract spreadsheet. Instead of being constrained to, you know, column and row number variable names, you can use disclosure names wherever you can, whether they're let bound or defined or whatever.
0: Now, is that um, that general? I mean, in other words, are you, is that a model that it's difficult to wedge certain types of, state into or do you find that it's extremely flexible? Like you know what I mean? Like oftentimes you have these models and they they kind of impose their way of thinking on you. For example, object orientation. I've just been pawing through reams of Java code this week and it's you know, it's it's obvious that there is an impact um on how the how the information is, information is manipulated. Do you find that with um data flow programming, um at least the way it's done in hoplon or in javelin I should say. That you have to do. I, I, this is a, this is a totally loaded question. Obviously, you have to do <laughs> much contortion to fit your application state in, or like. Uh,
1: so, we've found it to be absolutely 100% a totally kick-ass way to manage state. First of all, the idea of a spreadsheet is incredibly intuitive, and it was for us from day one. We are, we originally when we were in the design process, we did a lot of research into older older data data flow systems and the more recent. FRP systems, functional reactive programming, which kind of is in the same space. And many of them add constructs and objects and algebras and primitives that are way more complicated and nuanced than the spreadsheet. And we didn't see the value in them. (laughs) It always kept coming back to the spreadsheet. And um, I mean, the big difference between Javelin and your normal Excel is that the, the propagation model of, of, of your data flow which is to say you know what causes values to change in your system that's separate and sort of orthogonal to other things that are important like uh, how are the things in your system named and what, how, how, how do you encapsulate pieces of this graph you know are these, are these things what kind of objects are these in, the, in your in your host language so in Javelin's case you know, it's it's those kind of edges of systems like this where you you know make the money, make or break it, because you know that's the interop side. So, for as far as interop goes, you know our Javelin cells are closure script reference types. Really, they can be dereferenced. You can swap on input cells or reset input cells. And we've you know, if 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 Javelin or excuse me, if Hoplon had any kind of overarching goal, it was definitely we wanted to solve the problem of encapsulation, prob- various problems of encapsulation, modularity, and reuse in web apps, because that's, for us, been the most difficult thing to do is, you know, how do I write a big, awesome web app and then later use pieces of it? Until we wrote Hoplon, we weren't sure that was possible. <laughs> <laughs> um, especially if you're not in the same, I mean, it's you know, if you're within a framework, sometimes you get a little bit of reuse, but, and so maybe you'll get a lot, but, that framework is probably tuned for a, a specific use case. So if you need to build an app later that's significantly different, it becomes less and less likely that you'll ever be able to reuse anything. So <coughs> Javelin really, for us, supports this goal because it doesn't imply anything about the DOM or HTML or browsers. All it needs is what Clojure Script gives it, which is you, know, you can name things and you can write functions. <laughs> so it supports the style of Programming, which is any any Hoplon app or any app really, any application at all, has is a little is a little state machine, where the environment, the values in the environment are kind of the state, and whenever the user does anything or if an event comes in from the internet, it, the program shifts into a new state, and um, Javelin really really helps us write programs that acknowledge that fact and make them, I think, significantly easier to, to think about. The final, the final part about Javelin that I would bring up with respect to composability is that when you when you create and start referencing cells, so like uh, in, a, in a spreadsheet you might have like cells A1 and A2 are values one and five, and then B7 is you know A1 plus A2, so you've got a little graph there, and maybe separately on the same sheet you would say, oh, and also you know the input cell C5 is going to be ten. And input cell D3 is going to be whatever that last cell I mentioned plus some constant like that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so now you've got, you know, the same sheet, but you have two disparate graphs. Um, a cool thing about spreadsheets is that if you create a new formula cell that references cells from the first graph and also from the second, there's a, there's a meaningful composition semantic Mm-hmm. Um, you know, spru- spreadsheets do this dependency-directed propagation so that when any of the values change, they make sure to update all the formula values in the order that they, they need to be. And uh, this, this concept is killer, I think, because in spreadsheet world, it means that you never think about time in a spreadsheet. It's just the <laughs> time is not a thing. Right. Um, and Javelin programs are the same. way. Yeah,
0: it's There's funny time. how that keeps cropping up, isn't it?
1: <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. Well, that time makes sense time. to me. Go ahead. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So final word about Javelin is like spreadsheets, you know, you, if you have multiple Javelin apps or components, they can combine as far as state goes the same way, you know, different sheets or different cells of your spreadsheet combine. Mm. So you don't need to do anything beyond reference them from one another and it will figure out the dependencies. What's the, me- the actual mechanism? Is there like a,
0: if I wanted to make my own component do, is there a, a protocol? Or are you just using the um, the, the fu- functionality of atoms, or how did you actually put it together?
1: Yeah. So a um, there's a cell type, and well, there's really two types of cell. There's an input cell and a formula cell. Uh, input cells are atom-like because you can swap bang and reset on them. They can also you can also add watches to them and you can deref them. So they're basically they're designed to be the sort of mutation inputs. The 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 holes into your data flow graph that your app is going to be putting values into. And then you have formula cells, which can depend on either input cells or other formula cells. And this is how you build your, your state machine. Formula cells throw an exception if you try and swap in or reset on them, the same way it doesn't really make sense to like change a formula cell in your spreadsheet to a, to a value for no reason. However, the body of a formula cell is gonna be a closure expression, closure script expression. And that expression can reference other cells. That's where you do your cell, that's where you talk about other cells and your cell it's like your it's like the you know, it's like the little square you have when you type equals in a spreadsheet. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually you do the same thing in Javelin, you say cell equals and then you write enclosure. And in these formula cells is where the where the magic kind of happens because that's where we do the the code, you know, fancification. CPSing, lifting, inverting, all that crazy yeah. macro stuff.
0: Right, the 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 core async three hundred line macro equivalent.
1: <laughs> yes, yeah. We yeah. actually take a different approach, but it, it's it's worked out okay.
0: Okay, maybe we'll talk about that in a little bit. I'm I'm yeah. curious to hear the uh, the rest of the story.
1: Yeah. So, um, so yeah. You you know the practice of building. It, it's really actually very. I must say a very pleasant programming experience. The same way I don't know closure kind of was when I first started, like getting momentum because you're building this little machine with these cells and you can get the little machine to do neat things. Uh, it's, I don't know, it's just satisfying i, I found to, to build your state machine using these using these primitives, the cells. And I
0: mean it's functional so you have the same advantages of, you know, testing becomes easy, et cetera, et cetera.
1: Yeah, that's actually an interesting uh, point is basically, you know, all kinds of stuff is really easy because it's functional. Um, you know, this you can very easily collect up the state of your whole data flow graph into some stack, maybe. Like if you want undo, all you need to do is write a formula cell that puts, or you know, add a watch to your something in your cell network that just stores the values that have come in. And then you can rewind through them, replay them, or whatever. Um, you can also just manually change the values of your input cells, and you'll see your whole graph. Clickety clack into position to match the, you know, the new value. So, yeah.
0: That actually raises a. Uh, this is a naive question, I'm sure, but um, I'm I'm guessing you can set me straight. Um, you know, I just we just got done saying, oh yeah, it's functional, it's great, it's great. But the but the model that it sounds most like, or the thing that it's most familiar to me, is um, atoms, which you know we're talking about mutation.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, but would it be possible to take an approach where you know you'd wind up with I don't know a function or or or, or data or or something that's less um, you know bang on it over here and and eventually over here you observe some other change.
1: Yes, so it's possible in your formula expression to write any closure code, but what we I mean tend to do actually is you just write closure functions that don't do anything with Javelin. and they just need to be functions of non cells, you know, whatever, just regular arguments. And so you you know you can write about a bunch of functions and those functions can be tested the same way you test any like a closure script function if you want. You just call it with a value. But you can call those functions from inside your cell formulas. So the way our bigger javelin apps turn out is um, we write a bunch of reg- regular closure functions and then we use them as we use them in the state machine that we build with the cell formulas. Is that uh,
0: right well? To I your guess question
1: at all? Not not really. I mean, it makes sense. <laughs> but
0: I guess my question is more along the lines. I, I think about something like um, Prismatic's graph, right?
1: Mm.
0: Um, where what you have there is essentially a data description of a function, and it's similar to what you're talking about because there are there are named points in this computational graph, and you can. Re- you can assign values to the ones that are inputs and read values from the ones that are outputs. But right. there's no mutation happening. So in your system, you've got um, you know, you've got identity, right? You've got a name for something that can have different values over time. And I'm just trying to figure out if, if there was something that drove you to that as a necessity or, or some advantage that that has or, or again, like I said, it's a naive question, like I'm sure there's a good reason, but I'm just trying to figure out, how to contrast those two approaches, because generally speaking, we yeah. tend to prefer the the one that doesn't have mutation in it
1: yeah, well, you hit on something there I think that is relevant to what our next topic will be, but there is nothing more declarative than a program <laughs> and javelin embraces the idea that you know your state machine moves forward by the application of code to your existing state I think that. There are more data E ways to describe. I mean, obviously, there are a lot of ways to describe a dependency graph. And, you know, uh, prismatic, oh, what was it called again? Graph the, they have there. Well, oh, I, I, think of, I always think of Stuart Sierra's, which makes me a...
0: Oh, component. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Great um, of names, right?
1: Yes, yes.
0: Hoplon is much better. Javelin <laughs> is much better. <laughs> no, you. I'm kidding. Those are both. Those are all <laughs> fine names. Please, no angry emails. They're great.
1: <laughs> well, naming's hard, too. Naming is hard. Unless uh, yeah, you're Kyle Kingsbury, apparently. Oh, man. He's so cool. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Kyle. <laughs> anyway. Um, yeah. So uh, there are a lot of ways to describe these you know, dependency graph, And um, I think Javelin's approach is kind of actually fairly similar to the prismatic one in that you, know, you describe your dependency graph the same way you describe the dependency graph of variable names in your program. Like, you can only build your graph out of things that the code at that point could see, whether that's something that you've, you know, imported in your NS thingy or exists in that scope. And uh, that's kind of, that's part of our, 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 our attack on the modularity problem, is we don't want to take on none of our libraries, we, no, we don't want any of our libraries or any part of Hoplon to take on naming or composition or anything that ClojureScript already does, because it does it fabulously. And um, there are a lot of different ways to describe data flow graphs, where you might admit your own little naming scheme or your own dependency scheme, and we try and avoid. A, we tried to, very hard to avoid anything like that because um, uh, that's just adding additional functionality to something that's already solved by Clojure, as far as we're concerned. Now, another outcome from that, depending on closure scripts modularity stuff to do with, like composition of these data flow graphs is that they're they're dynamic which is to say I mean this isn't really a thing in ClojureScript yet but you can add and remove cells to and from the graph at, at runtime
0: mm-hmm.
1: which is functionality that we don't again we don't really use but it's it may come up and you know certainly you have that in a spreadsheet you can add and remove cells at any time. Mm-hmm. So we under the covers and some implementation stuff and other parts of Hoplon we take advantage of the, the mutable cell graph, but as far as describing your state machine, it's not very often it hasn't really come up that you would you would do that. But it's possible. And it's also how, you know, you composed your, your cell graph with other cell graphs. It's, you know, you it's kind of like you're merging these two state machines together and the boundaries are the names they expose to each other.
0: Yeah, that was actually something that when I went to use Graph I found to be Problematic was this idea of um, the names being global. Like the problem I was trying to solve was audio processing, mm-hmm. and I wanted to be able to compose, you know, arbitrary chains of processing. Where, you know, I might have an operation like, you know, split a track, a stereo track into two mono tracks, or increase the gain, or fade in or fade out. And I wanted to have these operations that talk about their input, um, and then produ- you know, produce some output that would be the the operation applied to that input stream and mm-hmm. the problem I had was that um, I couldn't and and there may be a way to do this I, I didn't look at it for for all that long I, I, I couldn't get to a place where I could say okay this is a name that generically represents the input to one of what might be many uh, what might be many different gain operations in this in this single overall operation and so you know I, I couldn't basically couldn't pick names for my for my cells, because they had to be global. Is that, uh, is that same situation come up in Hoplon or... You know uh, I-
1: no, for two reasons. One is that um, cells don't need to be named to participate in the graph. So you can totally have an anonymous cell. Gotcha. Um, you can have cells that take a, a function that returns a cell that takes a cell as an argument or whatever. So okay. you, all kinds of permutations of cells, functions are possible there. Um, the second thing is that, you know, the dependency graph that Javelin maintains on your behalf, which gives it the consistency property, is, is completely dynamic. So if you add, an, say you have some existing network of cells and you want to add one to it, when you do that, that cell that you just added will be evaluated, or when, when propagation happens, you know, when an event happens, or, or when data changes that causes the values to start shifting We'll make sure that that most recent thing is called at the right time. So, you know, and that doesn't that doesn't require that the thing that you just added has a name. So yeah, in general, it's just it's. I mean, the prismatic thing is really cool, and originally, um, I was thinking of maybe integration points or maybe they can do the same thing. But I think they're 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 different. You know, the the they require names, and it's a static data flow graph. The benefit to them is. There's some there's some com- computing effort required in re- recalculating the dependency graph at runtime, like Javelin does, and we have like kind of a fancy function there that does that, and there's a cost associated with it. But right, uh, but
0: they're doing theirs on a server supporting who knows how many users, <laughs> and you have the whole damn browser to yourself. So <laughs> right, yeah, no, that's fair. Okay, yeah. so that makes a lot of, of sense. it's kind of solving different things. Yeah. Right, right. Okay. All right, cool. Well, I know you were only halfway through the story at this point. I don't know if we've if we've wrapped no, the no, Javelin overview, but.
1: We're building Steam. Okay. So part three is... So, you know, I, I've i been very happy with Javelin and Dataflow and Spreadsheets, and that's really fun. But um, the coolest, the absolute coolest part of Hoplon is part number three, which is H-List. This is the game changer for me. Where to start? So ha- have you read anything about this property of, of Hoplon?
0: How it's... Uh, yes. Okay. Yeah, but but I mean I don't I'm sure that at least one of our listeners has not so okay. lay it on them.
1: Okay. Do this with a story. I was thinking about how to best describe what this is, and I'm going to start with a story. So imagine you are walking on a beach, and you look down at the ground, and you see some pebbles in the ground. It's a mixture of I don't know gray, uh, gray and 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 black pebbles. And you see there's a, there's a pattern in the black pebbles th- that they form just by nature of, or by virtue of laying there on the beach. Well, what is that arrangement? Well, I don't know. You know, we need to interpret it somehow. What does it mean? I don't know. When you look at something in the world, how do you know what it means? The fact that it's there is a piece of data that you have. But what it means to you and how it changes what you do is, you know, how you interpret it is this pro- process of cognition. Well, one thing we could do with these pebbles, so we're standing now on this beach, we're staring at the ground and mumbling to ourselves. We see the pebbles and we think, well, you know, maybe the pebbles are actually an esoteric programming language. Like, what if we say that pebbles that are closer to the ocean, those are, those are actually calls to an increment operator that'll move a, a read or a write head across our tape, our memory tape. And maybe the pebbles that are closer to my feet, those decrement. And then maybe, you know, if the pebble is bigger than my thumb then that means we're going to move the right head of our Turing machine or you know, our, our simple evaluator, evaluator to the right. So now we've observed this thing in nature uh, the, act, the act of observation is the collection of this data and now we're saying we're, we're starting to apply our own rules for interpreting it. Now we can go elsewhere in the world and look at pebbles and see them as programs. I mean who knows what they'll do? We don't know but um, we can give them meaning by applying rules so you can look at anything in nature and apply an evaluation semantic to it and it becomes a programming language.
0: <laughs> okay, <So. laughs> I, I, I'm I'm with you, I'm wondering where this is going, but I'm with you so far.
1: Okay, so coming back to Earth, you know, in computers we're surrounded by data. You know, we're always on the beach, we're always looking at pebbles, they're everywhere, they're in the RAM, they're on the disk, um, we see formats like XML, YAML, and so on. Now. Obviously, when you see a format like HTML, it's been boxed up for you to be interpreted. It already is a programming language. Um, but if you have data in hand, you know you can get additional leverage by applying your own ways of, of thinking about it. Perhaps the, the people who came up with the format didn't intend. And the particular tool that we have to give infinite meaning to, to tree structured data is Lisp. Lisp is this very small idea, which is whenever in the world you see any data that can be interpreted as having a tree structure, it can be a programming language too. Which is, you know, that's that's the idea of Lisp. And historically, Lisp is implemented on top of linked linked lists, but you know, it can be any any tree structure can become a programming language through Lisp's rules. So, Misha. Misha and I were thinking about this, and this is mostly Misha's idea. But
0: by the way, the Misha you're mentioning is the is the other person in the Wii when you talk about Hoplin, right?
1: Right. Yes, he is uh, a longtime long friend, a long time friend of mine, um, and he and I had been working on things related to Hoplon for probably the past uh, since 2007 or 2008 is when we started building web apps together. That's like
0: six decades in internet years, right? Yeah,
1: yeah, forever. Well, he had this idea, so the idea was what if you know HTML is a tree structure and it's kind of a programming language like a browser evaluates HTML but it's not a very useful programming language because you can't do things in HTML like reference other places in the document. Things can have identifiers but those identifiers are global and you can't do any kind of calculation based on other data I'm just just talking now just about you know what happens when you go to a web page in your browser the, the HTML is evaluated into something that you see on the screen but it's fairly it's a fairly weak programming language as they go and of course you don't have the ability at runtime to change any anything in just pure HTML HTML doesn't give you anything to do to manipulate itself dynamically
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, there's a separate environment JavaScript which does this JavaScript for our purposes is already a list via ClojureScript. So the idea was, well, we have on, in the JavaScript runtime environment, that, that's a, a, a runtime that is a list, but it's an awesome list, and it has visibility and the ability to mutate HTML. All the things that HTML can't do to itself as a programming language, JavaScript can. Then we have HTML, which people mostly treat as the sort of I.O. cesspool. <laughs> um, but you know it is a tree structure. So maybe to eliminate this mismatch, which is the absolute boon for anybody who wants to write anything modular or reusable on the web, maybe what we can do is say, well, we'll just apply Lisp semantics to HTML. That way, it becomes a programming language the same way the stuff in JavaScript did. And now instead of having two environments, we've got one. Hmm. Um, okay. So, sorry. Give me any, maybe this will
0: help me if it's more concrete. So
1: yeah. So the 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 concrete thing is. Um, in, in Hoplon, when you're writing an HTML template, you're not actually writing HTML. We have a preprocessor that takes your HTML and compiles it into ClosureScript. So we don't have any static templates at all.
0: So if I write something that's just like a div that contains an image tag, mm-hmm. that goes through some process and becomes what?
1: Well, your div is gonna be a function call to the hoplon.hlist.div function. Um, which returns an actual DOM element value. It would be the return value of the function okay. call. And um, these these elements, these HTML elements, are are also invocable. So if you had like a list of items, you could do map li over the list,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and that would return you know a vector of elements. And to invoke one of these elements is really uh, to append. So we're in we're in are in Lisp. If you um, have an argument, it gets evaluated and passed to the function. In HLisp, if you have an argument, it gets evaluated into a DOM node uh, and gets appended to the function. <laughs> function slash element. Um so there's some tricky there's some tricky aspects to this because uh, HTML has is slightly more nuanced than lists are. And I don't know, I think I'll spare you the details, but they're <laughs> you know like Lisp, there's just a, there's a few small rules to turn it into um, to turn HTML into Lisp, and this is the stuff that Misha designed over a couple iterations. The current, the current Hoplon compiler is like the fourth attempt, but yeah, it compiles your markup into ClojureScript code, and these element function things return DOM actual DOM element values.
0: Okay, right. so what I wind up with is a is a client application that's completely dynamic. I mean, it would just be, I mean pure javascript in the sense of not even having any html in it
1: correct and it's it that's exactly what happens so mm-hmm. when you have your when you have your template we we actually for for uh seo purposes we can do what we call pre-rendering which is we can evaluate the initial version of your page sure and you know get that into a string and that's the like the skeletal html um, then the first thing that happens when the hoplon app boots is we blow all of we blow the body away and evaluate your top-level HTML function, and then append it to the body, or, or append it to the page.
0: This is interesting, because this is how, I mean, this is how UI has been done for a long time before the advent of HTML, and there have been other um, markup languages before HTML, but you know, used to, back in the day, when you wanted a UI, you would write code <laughs> that would say, <laughs> draw this thing, and so you've said, well, that's what the browser is doing anyway, but let's let's move that, let's move some aspect of that evaluation out into my program where I can then, uh, I, I mean, I think, like you said, the main win is modularity, right, being able to compose these things.
1: There's two mega epic wins, in my opinion. The first is, the first is modularity and composition, um, because now we're living in an environment where, you know, a function can return an HTML element, and we can later do something with that. You can have, you know, higher order HTML generating functions. Yes, right. Because, you Templates, know, all the, all, yep. the, all the stuff you can do in functional programming now applies to building HTML. Right. The second thing, which is slightly more nuanced and doesn't really bite you unless you're building something big, is when you have a data, like a an as data representation of something, like uh, Hiccup is a good example of, mm-hmm. you know, here's a, here's a fairly common um, middle mid-level abstraction for, for the DOM that's just easy for us to work with in a lot of ways. If you so one, so you have say you're working in Hiccup and say you have the requirement to do something like uh, I need to spit out a bunch of LIs and each Li or list item needs to have a button inside of it and when you click that button it should delete its parent Li. So now you have a situation where you're there's something in your data that's self reference self referencing and at the time you're writing the template, you need to unify the button with its parent, usually by some kind of, like a temporary, you might, like a sim, like an identifier mm-hmm. that you'll you know later use at runtime to make sure that when you click the button, it deletes the right thing. But the more complicated those kinds of things get, the more complicated this naming that you have to do gets, because now you're managing these temporary names. Sure. And you're also, it's sort of like writing a macro in the sense that, you're managing the temporary names that will later be like later at runtime something will happen with them. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, it's and, an, it's kind of a kind of the bad sort of indirection.
1: Yes, it's it's definitely I would say not good. And that that difficulty is the difficulty that one takes on when when one decides to work with an intermediate representation of data. Um, because you know data is just data is not a programming language data is data and if you want naming semantics in it you're going to have to bring your own because you don't it's not a programming language yeah
0: right we're right whereas if you're if you were writing this in raw javascript you would just say parent right right
1: yeah yeah you, you're any number of awesome functions right, right. Sure. so yeah you we don't we just don't have that issue because um it's it's programming all the way down and i learned recently I can't believe I didn't know this for so long, but PostScript. PostScript is maybe the sweetest thing ever.
0: Yes, I used, I learned PostScript at one point as like a, it's it's a programming language. Like you can really totally. write code in it. I, and I don't remember why, but I actually learned it at one point and wrote a few, um, you know, just beyond trivial programs in it. Um, and there's awesome. interpreters for it everywhere. It's, it's crazy. Yeah.
1: No, it's... Postscript is an amazing thing, and I was really refreshed to run into it, because I think it was invented for the same reasons that we invented Hoplon,
0: mm-hmm.
1: which is, you know, they had this problem where in the mid-80s, a lot of laser, fancy laser printers were coming out, and there were too many manufacturers and too many different kinds of printers to even begin to think about what the data format would be that all of the printers would recognize. You know, because Apple had, like, a really fancy laser writer, whatever thingy that had, like, mega DPI, and then there was other crappier ones, and you know they they were expecting different sizes of they could do different resolutions. Some of them had fonts built in, some of them didn't. So there was just this explosion when it came to printers and what the printers could do, their capabilities. I think a bunch of the dudes, the printer manufacturer dudes, sat down and, and tried to come up with a format. Like, what does your what 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 is the shape of the data that your computer sends one of these printers, such that you know we don't have to write. Lots of printer-specific code on the computer side, and in a in a in a genius move, they said, "Well, you know what? You know what? The ultimate shape of data is a freaking computer program, <laughs> <laughs> a, se- a thing that can be self-describing, a thing where you know it can maintain internal references, a thing that you can call, a thing that returns a value." So that's what they did, and I think it was a, a huge hit because now instead of having to support some 100-line or 100-billion-page printer format spec. They just had to implement a very simple computer program in the printer, which they did. And now these programs can be complicated, but the semantics of the postscript itself are simple and easy to implement. So you can have really complicated logic for generating the program, but the logic that runs it is very simple. So then when new printers came out, they just had to support the postscript and good to go. And Mm -hmm. of course, all the existing stuff would still work. So... So yeah, I was I was really I, I can't believe I didn't know that. And actually I, I ran into a a web page where a guy had a he had a Mandelbrot generator written in Postscript. Awesome. <laughs> and you can you can open it. Like if you open it in your, you know, computer's reader, like preview or whatever, it takes like five minutes to show something. <laughs> <laughs> but sure enough, Mandelbrot fractal pops up.
0: That's super cool. Boy, that yeah. is a real flashback for me, Alan. I hadn't thought about PostScript in quite some time.
1: Dude, it's so awesome, and knowing PostScript, I think you're especially primed to to get into h list.
0: Yeah, this. I gotta tell you. So first of all, I'm I'm, it's, in a way, I have these conversations with um, people like you that are working on such interesting, interesting technologies, and I'm not I'm not a front end person. Like I have some things that I would like to build, but you know, primarily I work. Um, in the invisible parts um and uh it's like man maybe i had to think about shuffling stuff around so i can do this cuz i've heard you talk about this several times before i even stood in front of you and said okay html is a lisp what what's the deal with that but uh but this time your explanation really is resonating with me and it it makes a lot of sense um, and i can i can even picture it um in my mind like what it would look like to develop an application where i'm thinking of html as a programming language i mean suddenly things like um uh, what we called controls when I was doing ASP, right? These little yep. chunks of custom tags. Uh, it's fairly obvious what those do and how you would build ones. That's super yes. cool.
1: Yes, amazing stuff has fallen out of it for us. And and one of the big ones is this idea of you know controls. We can do that now because everything that was in the before times was like this you know third class data mutation cesspool thing is now just programming functions. Um, how <laughs> would so you, when you write this up, you can write it up as, instead of out
0: of the tar pit, out of the cesspool, right?
1: <laughs> out of the cesspool. <laughs> <laughs> so, so stuff like that, like we have a general purpose, like in, built into Hoplon, one of the libraries that comes with it, we have a general purpose tabs element. It looks and smells like an HTML element. Mm-hmm. And in our HTML templates, you can, even, you can just write tabs, and then you write, um, it's kind of like a let, it's kind of like let enclosure. You know, you have the, the name and the value, alternating mm-hmm. pairs. Yep. And we have an HTML element, it's like hoplon.tabs, and it takes alternating, it takes pairs of other HTML elements. And it will set them up in tabs. And it works with any number of things, and it's completely generic, and it's completely encapsulated. The the internal state it manages, like which tab I'm on currently, is managed completely internally. So it, it doesn't interfere at all with whatever your parent app state is or anything. It maintains its own little cell graph inside. Between between Javelin and HLisp, as far as we're concerned, the client side is just completely solved because we have modularity, we can write general abstractions like tabs. You know, we can we can easily do we have a means to doing these higher order abstractions. Functions that take HTML elements and return a new HTML element. We have the ability to mix you know with with closures. We can create elements that have encapsulated state. Mm-hmm. Um, because we can have you know a closure with a cell in it, and we nobody ever sees the value of that cell. So and only things in the scope, and you know it's just functional programming stuff is now coming into play in a big way, because we've we've lifted HTML to Lisp, and because we have this this um, sort of reactive spreadsheet thing going on. Hmm. So yeah, it's been it's been awesome times, client for us.
0: Well, and so I I know we're we're starting to run down on time, unfortunately, but I, oh. I want to make sure that we get to part four before we have to wrap it up.
1: Yes. So everything we've talked about now has been um, client side really. Part 4 is the server side piece and for us that's a library called Castra. And Castra is a is a both a closure and a closure script library which is now in vogue. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> and but it's I don't think we do. We don't do like code sharing fancy stuff. It's very small. All of these pieces are very small, I should say. I think all of Poplon, including our build tool, all of our libraries, Javelin, HList, everything is like less is like 1,500 lines of closure. Mm. You know, when you when you invest in this stuff, you're not investing in a lot of code at all, and it's all very small and fairly clean. Um, and Castro does adds I don't know 60 lines. So what Castra is a um, like I said, it's closure and closure script, and it is basically an RPC mechanism. It gives you a way to annotate Functions on your server, closure functions, with metadata such that the ring handler that comes with Castra can um, expose or not expose those functions depending on some precondition. So the problem is well, you're probably thinking to yourself, RPC, oh oh lord. Um,
0: Uh, Not necessarily.
1: So one of the, so RPC is a a very, I think, a, a nuanced thing that has a bad rap. The problem with classical RPC, I think the kind of RPC most people think of is, you know, I have a computer here and a computer over there, and I want to call functions remotely. And when I call a function remotely, maybe that function updates something in the database and tells me the person's new age. Like maybe I'm calling, you know, add you know, increment Bob's age function. Usually these RPC functions return small values, like the same thing a function call would return. Right? Right. The problem in a in a distributed scenario is that now the client has this return value from this RPC function, which is a piece of state from the server. And the client may have its own state, and the server may now, maybe another client called the server and, you know, further manipulated the server state. And now I'm the client holding onto this return value from this RPC function, which is now basically completely meaningless. because. I have no way to talk to the server again about it. Um, Hey, I got this value 5 from you 10 minutes ago. Last I heard, it was Bob's age. Please set Bob's age to 6. So now, you know, maybe Bob's age, I don't know, maybe some kind of simulation or game, and now Bob's age has been manipulated by other clients, and it's actually 10. So if the client tries to tell the server, hey, replace Bob's current age with whatever it is with the number 6, which is the last incremented value I know of, then, you know, data is lost. So the, the the problem there that we try and solve with Castra is um, basically just a uh, a perspective on RPC, which is these functions should not return values. If they're going to return a value, it should be the whole state of the client. Everything the client could ever possibly see is what the return value of any RPC function should be.
0: So that's a, maybe a little bit akin to like a datomic database value.
1: Absolutely. And yeah, basically what we do is we kind of extend. Well, the direction we want to go with it, um, as far as parts of Javelin or parts of Hoplon that are still need work, I think Castor is probably one of them. Um, the the direction we want to take with it is, we would like to be able to consider the server as an input cell. Hmm. You know, we can we can dereference it. We can incorporate it into our local state machine by composing it as a as a cell. That's the direction we want to go, and we're not we're not sure it's possible, but it's definitely very similar to the way you you sort of destructure a datomic database. There's some amount of global state in your program, then there are views into that state which are the, the state as far as any particular client is concerned, and then that state is used to, to drive that client's view of the whole world. Right, and it's consistent is the important thing. Exactly, exactly.
0: Hmm. And it sounds like the way you've put this together, um, you know, if people already had an existing approach they wanted to take, the, the various pieces like in other words, Caster is not required for to use um, H Lisp or Javelin or.
1: No, no, and actually, um, Clinton Nixon, or excuse me, Clinton Dreisbach, he gave a talk at CodeMash a couple months ago where he demonstrated a Hoplon front end that had, I think, two or three different backends. Liberator was one of them, HTTP Kit, and then maybe he did Caster. I can't remember, but, but yeah, you, you don't you don't you don't buy into the server side necessarily when you, when you buy into Hoplon. Um, this is just the way that we found works. It seems to work the best for us for the kinds of things that we build. But there's, you know, there's a whole world of ways you can program programs. So, yeah, we don't try and stop you.
0: That's super cool.
1: So this this has
0: been awesome, Alan. And I I hate to even stop the conversation because there are actually other things I want to talk to you about too. But you know, I always we get to this point in the show and I always picture like people sitting in their driveway. <laughs> <laughs> you know, their dinner's getting cold or whatever. They're uh, their their husband or wife is peeking out the window. going, what are they doing out there? So uh, I do think we probably ought to wrap it up. But um, I mean, clearly Hoplon is something that people ought to check out. I know, like I said, I would, I, I, I really want to. Um, don't know whether I'll actually make time for that, given you know the other priorities I have. But I really appreciate you taking the time to um, to come and talk to us about it because this explanation was incredibly helpful for me, and I've actually been you know, keeping half an eye on the project. So I really appreciate that.
1: Yeah, no problem. No problem. Hoplon.io on, hop is the place to go. Um, I would say we're very open to uh, con- contributors, help um, with with anything. And we're we're an IRC a lot. So yeah, we're, we're, you know, growing and very friendly community. So we welcome anybody who wants to take a first.
0: Cool. Um, and uh, I know, like I said, we are winding down, but I don't want to totally cut you off. If there's anything else that you want to, Mention before we go, I don't mind keeping people in their, in their cars for a few more minutes.
1: <laughs> yes. Uh, well, I should say that the um, company I work for, which is Biosat, is uh, we're, we're looking for closure programmers. We don't have any Hoplon apps yet, but you can imagine them I'm working on changing that. <laughs> <laughs> but we do do a, a, a wealth of really cool stuff and reflecting We've... on my coworkers. I mean, you know, uh, yeah. Chris Hauser... David Lee Key and it's just a, a raft of dudes, way and and all kinds of people, way smarter than me. Um, so if you're interested in a closure job where there's a potential for writing closure script, then then look us up.
0: Yeah, I was just about to say the same thing you did, which is that there's a a, a great crew there. Um, you know, I know uh, I know quite a number of those guys, and um, they are they are awesome. And of course, that goes double for you. Um, and uh, as uh, you live in North Carolina, people should definitely be aware that Viasat, uh I, I think this is true, you can confirm it. Does work with remote people, so all the people yes. out there are like, I wish I could work in Clojure. Well, you can. So Yes, yes, um,
1: yes. I, Everybody's said, remote.
0: Yeah. No, I'm sorry, sorry. i just I said this before where, you know, you we, we've talked to people a lot about working in Clojure and and we hear two things. Um we hear companies going, Yeah, we'd love to hire Clojure programmers where, you know, we 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 sometimes have a little bit of trouble locating them and uh or 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 the or the converse where they'll be like you know, we're thinking about doing closure, but we're worried we can't find people. And then on the flip side, we talk to people who're like, "I'd love to work in closure, but I'm not sure where I'd get the jobs." And it's like, clearly, there is an unmet, unmet demand here because there are people that want to hire and people that don't want to work. So, yeah. it's always great to hear about um, uh, companies, uh, interesting companies uh, like Viasat, doing work in closure with uh, for people to check out. So, I highly encourage people to apply.
1: Yes, yes, come on, come all.
0: Absolutely. Um, cool. Well, cool, man. This has been great. I always love talking to you, whether it's recorded or not. Um, this one, I'm recording, so I've I've actually started recording everything on two different setups, so that because I've have re- actually lost a couple of recordings and had to ask people to re-record or whatever. So this is being recorded redundantly, so I, I will get this one on the air. Um, Very cool. So I'm I'm excited about that. Um, but of course, um, have to ask you one more question before we go, which is uh what music are we playing on the way out
1: let's let's do percy granger again let's do um an original composition of his called the immovable dough
0: the immovable dough fantastic i uh looking forward to hearing that um well alan thanks a ton for coming on and talking about hoplon i really hope that we can have you back again i you know um if, even if it weren't for the fact that you always have interesting things to work uh, to talk about we didn't even mention gherkin which is one of my favorite projects yours <laughs> ever um, uh, you know it's just awesome to talk to you and I and I think I <laughs> still feel like I owe you a little bit for the the two lost episodes but oh uh, no
1: it's okay I'm, yeah. I'm always happy to be on I really appreciate you inviting me Thank oh you. Yeah,
0: absolutely well thank you um, so we will close it down there uh, with another thank you to Alan and a thank you to everyone else for listening. You have been listening to the Cognicast. The Cognicast is a production of Cognitech Inc., whom you can find on the web at cognitech.com and on Twitter at cognitech. Our guest today was Alan Dipert on Twitter at alan dipert a l a n d i p e r t. The Cognicast is produced with help from. Alex Miller, Alex War, Damian Mack, David Chalimsky, Jamie Kite, Justin Gatlin, Lake Denman, Luke Vanderhart, Lynn Grogan, Mark Phillips, Russ Olson, Ryan Neufeld, Sam Mumbach, Sandy Esel, and Stuart Sierra. Episode cover art is by Michael Parenteau. Audio production by Russ Olson. I'm your host, Craig Andera. Thanks for listening.